This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Today we're doing the film Zero Fucks Given. I'll kick us off. Zero Fucks Given came out in 2021. In French, it's titled Rien à Futre. It stars Adèle Exarchopoulos as Cassandra. Cassandra works as a flight attendant for a low-cost airline that flies to many popular European tourist destinations. She's based out of Lanzarote, one of the Canary Islands. The Canaries lie off the coast of North Africa. They are today considered part of Spain. I went to Lanzarote once. It's full of volcanoes and monuments created by or dedicated to the artist known as César Manrique. We don't see very much of Lanzarote in this film, however. The focus is firmly on Cassandra and on the airline business. You see, Cassandra's mother has died in a car accident. Somebody was doing construction in a roundabout, and they left gravel all over the pavement, and very likely the gravel popped one of the tires. The car slammed into something solid, and that was the end of it. But the car was hauled off to a scrapyard before anyone could properly study what happened. This leaves Cassandra's family without enough evidence to extract a big settlement from the construction company. Depressed by the sudden and premature death of her mother, Cassandra works for this airline as a form of escapism. As a junior flight attendant, she hops from island to island. When she's working as a flight attendant and enforcing all the airline rules, she speaks in English. When she's partying on various islands with strangers, she speaks French. The contrast is powerful. As a flight attendant, Cassandra must enforce all sorts of petty bureaucratic rules. But once she's off the clock, she completely gives over to hedonism. Cassandra persuades herself that she likes this way of life. She boasts about all the traveling to her friends. She takes pride in the fact that none of her sexual encounters involve any level of serious attachment. When she meets a couple of trade unionists striking for better conditions, she tells them that she, quote, doesn't believe in change. But change comes, whether you believe in it or not. Cassandra's contract comes to an end. When it's up, the airline tells her that she must take a promotion to cabin manager. They won't renew her contract as a junior attendant. It's cabin manager or termination. Reluctantly, she agrees to be a cabin manager, and therefore to be the one responsible for the conduct of the flight attendants. There's a training session. She learns how to give CPR to incapacitated passengers, she learns how to unload the plane with those inflatable sea ramps. She learns to hold a smile for over 30 seconds. She is told that nobody cares about her past or her future. There is only the present moment in which she is a cabin manager. This use of a fundamentally Buddhist precept to encourage cabin managers to more completely and faithfully personate the airline is a bit unsettling. But what else can Cassandra do? If she takes a job at another airline, she'd have to leave Lanzarote. She might even have to come home for a spell, and that just won't do. At one point in the film, Cassandra deliberately accepts work over the holidays to avoid a trip home. Once in the cabin manager role, Cassandra finds herself compelled to value other things apart from her own fleeting pleasure. The airline really emphasizes getting the flight attendants to sell products off the duty-free carts, but Cassandra is reluctant to give bad reviews to junior flight attendants when they don't sell much. She remembers what it's like to be a junior, and her juniors do their best. The airline doesn't care. It wants to use the rating system to compel the juniors to push products more aggressively. When you're cabin manager, you don't really have the power to make autonomous decisions. The airline expects you to personate it faithfully, and it has a lot of rules and expectations. If you make personal judgments that conflict with those rules and expectations, you get in trouble. The cabin manager has none of the power but all of the responsibility. This comes to a head when Cassandra is forced to make a sick woman move seats. The woman has a ticket for an aisle seat, but because she's uncomfortable about her upcoming operation, she tries to sit by the window. The rules don't allow that, and Cassandra must enforce the rules. But after the woman moves, Cassandra feels bad. When you're the cabin manager, you feel more responsible for the decisions you take, even though you are every bit as much at the airline's mercy as you were before. In some ways, you're in an even weaker position because you can be blamed for the behavior of your juniors, too. But this feeling of responsibility pushes Cassandra to confront, to, excuse me, to comfort the woman 
and to even make the decision to buy the woman a drink with her own money. This is against the rules. Somebody rats. The airline decides to punish her with a transfer, but they have nowhere else to send her. Until they find somewhere to send her, she's out of a job. This forces Cassandra to go home and confront the situation. The film slows down a great deal at this point. There's a lot of very slow-moving family drama. Ultimately, Cassandra takes a job with an airline based out of Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. In the closing scene, we see Dubai put on a show with its fountains. The waste of water is watched by a group of people, all social distancing and wearing masks. In the background, we see the Burj Khalifa alongside a KFC and a Pizza Hut. The UAE has built a bunch of stuff that imitates an American city. It's a bit of a crass imitation, in much the same way that some American cities are themselves crass imitations of European cities. For one, these days, given the option, an American city would not build a KFC or a Pizza Hut downtown. It would build a Five Guys or a Chick-fil-A. The UAE looks a bit 2000 and late here. I found a lot to like in this film, even though it slows down rather painfully after Cassandra gets canned. Cassandra avoids dealing with her mother by working as a flight attendant, and she avoids confronting the fundamental character of the airline industry by partying nonstop. Once she is made a cabin manager, these ideological screens become insufficient, and there are too many moments where she acts based on her suppressed substantive values. In seeing Cassandra act on her real values, as opposed to the values she pretends to have, we come to view her more sympathetically. The airline, however, comes to view her as a liability, as a rogue employee who has neither internalized the airline's values nor learned to personate them properly. While I found the family drama slow-moving, I also saw value in some of what the film has to say about parent death. The death of a parent, especially when it comes too soon, forces us to question our values in a fundamental way. If our parent can die so young and in such a flippant, unfortunate way, the same thing could very well happen to us. Are we living a meaningful life? Are we doing anything of real value? These questions have haunted me for the last year, and they clearly haunt Cassandra. Of course, these are questions that never haunt the capitalist system as a whole, but only some of the people inside it at any given time. So when a parent dies and you are wrestling with the consequences of that, the rest of the system doesn't particularly care. Sure, particular people in it care. But if you tell, you know, if you tell someone your parent died and you're in a right state about it, you get sympathy. But, but companies, universities, and the state will still expect you to function in the same way you did before. For this reason, the sympathy you get from others always feels a bit fake, even though it is sincere. They mean what they say, but they say it in a personal capacity. What you really want is for the structure itself to sympathize, for the structure itself to respond to the death by joining you in rethinking its approach to value, by giving you an opportunity to reframe your life in view of what has happened. But companies, universities, and states lack the theological capacity to really tarry with values. They can't meet you where you are. You must always meet them where they are, even when their standpoint is totally inaccessible from where you are. All right, let's hear what Nina has to say. Yeah, great. Um, yeah, it is, it's a very slow-moving and in some ways quite a slight film, but none the worse for that. I was reminded all the way through of this very famous book by um, Ali Hochschild called The Managed Heart, which is probably about 50 years old now. Um, it's a very interesting book that seeks to combine feminist analysis with Marxist analysis. And Hochschild is primarily responsible for coining the term emotional labour, um, which has seen a, a series of perhaps misinterpretations in the decades <laughs> after it was coined. She, she always meant it to be a supplement to a properly materialist um, analysis. And the reason why I mention Hostchild is that her primary example of the kind of labour that she thinks has come to increasingly characterise work in the West, um, you know, what we would now call service, I get, you know, service work, uh, work that involves, let's say, your character and your personality and all of these sorts of um, 
uh, other aspects which are not directly, let's say, physical labour, as in the old kind of image, vulgar image of the labourer. Um, she takes as her example uh, the air hostess. <laughs> um, and I'd be very surprised if the directors of this film had not come across the hostile book because in many ways the film is more or less a direct depiction of the kinds of labour involved in the kinds of work that Hostchild um, examines in the, the work of the air hostess. The air hostess has to not only look good, walk properly, uh, be the brand of the airline, like her entire, let's say he, he, uh, she, there are, there are obviously male flight attendants too, but the paradigmatic image is of, indeed, of the smiling air hostess. And, and Benjamin mentioned the 30 second sequence where it's almost like a kind of art house scene, in fact, where the, where the, the, uh, the air hostesses are trained, if you like, to smile. They have to hold a smile for 30 seconds. Um, and it's very difficult. It's very, it's very interesting to see the characters do this. And I know that the directors employed real life, um, uh, air stewards, uh, in the film. Um, and one of Hostchild's major points is that basically, uh, these kinds of service jobs that involve the sale of your emotion, let's say you're pretending to be happy, you're pretending to smile. They induce a whole series of, of, of forms of cognitive dissonance. So precisely the fact that Cassandra is uh, clearly grieving, clearly upset, but nevertheless persisting in this this budget airline job and, uh, you know, participating in this kind of alienated, indifferent kind of global economy of which low cost airlines are, of course, a feature. Um The fact that she can't hold her smile for 30 seconds, I think, is a very slight but very moving aspect of this uh of this film because it precisely points to the limits of uh the capacity for people to bear cognitive dissonance precisely as benjamin says in jobs that require the performance of a particular set of emotions um and there's a very good line where she has to deal with a kind of slightly belligerent maybe slightly drunk um male passenger on the flight where he is demanding a beer and he says, I've paid for my luggage. I've, I've paid for my ticket. I paid for my seat. I paid for everything. And, you know, anyone who's flown low cost airlines knows how sort of, you know, uh, how, how they operate. You know, they're, they're very much at this kind of, um, you pay for everything level, uh, even to the extent I think the Ryanair guy said that people should pay for the toilet at some point, you know, before people pointed out that that was maybe going a little bit too far. Um, but he, he, you know, he enters into this kind of belligerent, like demanding position. And he says, I have to pay for a smile as well, do I? And I thought this was like a fantastic example precisely of what Hostchild is trying to talk about in, in terms of this demand of particular jobs at the level of this giving, selling oneself, selling one's capacity to be human, Precisely. But it is at the very moment where Cassandra is human, that is to say she steps into the role of caring above and beyond the job for this woman who is unable to communicate in English and is, is clearly um, anxious and worried about this uh, operation. And, and, you know, as Benjamin said, she, she buys her uh, uh, some wine with her own credit card, which somehow both goes, it goes against some regulations and, and Cassandra is caught. You know, it's at the very moment where she is genuinely human, which is to say she's not pretending to smile um, and be fake nice as the brand of the airline, um, that she is kind of... Um, uh, punished uh, for it by by the regime by the by the ideology of this uh, system, um, and I sometimes used to talk about Hostchild's work when I was talking about labour and work. I did lots of um, papers on this topic a while ago, and w there was a very interesting form of um, strike that happened a few years ago. I think it was a Singaporean airline where all of the air hostesses went on a smile strike. Because they precisely realised that this is what the brand was, you know, in a sense that their job was precisely to manifest this image of the welcoming woman. Um, and that they, they realised that it wouldn't, it, it, the old forms of strike perhaps wouldn't be so appropriate. I mean, you have the confrontation of the film between the kind of the more traditional strikers who, with the placards and, you know, saying, don't, don't go, don't go to work, but rather to refuse to participate in the emotional economy demanded of you actually raises some very interesting questions about what that participation, labour participation, um, is. Uh, so I, I was thinking all the time about this, 
you know, the idea of emotional labour um, and of the possibility of a smile strike. Um, but I think Benjamin, you know, has taken it much further with this um, very serious point about the the values that are in a way impossible to be recognised by a system that pretends all the time that it's functioning and that and that everyone must be uh, a version, a persona, you know, a mask of themselves in order to sell something else, um, to sell the company, to sell the brand. Um, so in, in that sense, I thought it was quite a, a subtle film and a very contemporary uh, contemporary film and I, I I enjoyed it in its slenderness and I think some of the scenes are very beautifully shot the very slow sort of alienated walks that she takes in these kind of villages where people live in this transient way because they're constantly uh, moving Alright, so this was Helen's pick so she goes last Yeah, I agree with you I think it was a very beautiful film I just wanted to um, first of all pick up on the managed heart and energy and as you say um that was uh, a piece of work that drew on the experience of airline um studios in the, in the 80s and obviously uh, we've talked about this in relation to mad men you know we have um everything that is um sacred is profaned under capitalism any job that was once formerly prestigious in the 80s we can say that uh, perhaps being an airline hostess was more prestigious than it is today certainly in this budget context but you know, it was less prestigious than, say, the heyday of the 60s or whatever. And that that time when there seemed to be a lot of um, having fun as their airline hostess, and now it's sort of this, this um, you know, reduced to a commoditized smile, a fake enjoyment. Um, but the thing that I um, think is interesting in the idea of emotional labor is to do with recognition. So under capitalism, we are, um, especially in the service industry, forced to become something that we are not we are forced you know this is your alienation point you know but we're forced to become a commodity and this is this goes for social media obviously the screen plays a large role in this film you know she's online dating and what have you um but this universe that we live in of the screen of social media of um service jobs of uh performative niceness of towing this very specific line because as you say you can't be actually authentically nice it has to be an alien an alien you can't be too true you know with every ideological system there are rules and are rules that are meant to be broken and not broken and you have to sort of it's your job to sort of dance around the line but this fakeness um in uh let's say we related to the idea of recognition um, through Hegel and later through psychoanalysis. Um, when we project ourselves or when we are commanded to project ourselves under capitalism as a commodity, we project a wholeness. And this wholeness means that we aren't a divided subject and for or we don't appear to be a divided subject. And for recognition to occur, it must occur in the inner human subject who must be divided in order to speak and to think. So the instability of the other is precisely necessary to make us more stable in our own recognition. Like we have to, there is a, like a dialogue of language, a dialogue of subjectivity that must be um, held within the mind of a divided subject. We often think on social media today that there are people who are airing their dirty laundry who are saying they have all kinds of problems and it seems to be like, oh no, this is my real self, this is all, we're all broken, we're divided subjects. I would say absolutely not. And this is what capitalism does. It makes us think that we're getting the authentic thing, but it is actually a commodity. And when it is a commodity, it is a projection of wholeness that offers this ideology of promise that this thing can quench our lack. But the lack is precisely the necessary thing for subjectivity to emerge in the first place, which is necessarily divided if speech occurs. And that is necessary for the other person in the interaction of subjectivity and language to be a solid self as well. This is high psychoanalysis where psychoanalysis obviously involves transference where the patient goes in believing that the other is you know, whole and complete and that they will help them in some way and gradually they're disabused. But there's no disabusing in the, the universe of social media. And when it is projected that, you know, I'm a victim of this, that and the other, unfortunately, it's not really a true, you know, it, it, it doesn't go far enough as in the way that the sort of emancipatory way that Cassandra um, addresses the lady who is unwell, but rather it is a commoditized version that is a sort of 
This is what this signifier means under capitalism. And I would argue that this uh, universe in which the emotional labor, obviously um, emotional labor occurs on Instagram, and it, emotional labor for me is not the emotional labor that we we hear thrown about as in, like, you know, I had to do a bit of, you know, talking to someone who was unhappy and that was emotional labor and I don't have time for it. I think that's the precise opposite. I think it is the alienation that occurs in a subject when they must perform a perceived wholeness in the eyes of the of the person they are serving and that does a disservice to the person they are serving and it makes people more themselves feel more alienated more anxious i think this is partly why social media social media isn't anxiety producing just because everybody seems to have a really nice life on social media and you don't it's precisely because there is a problem in the projection of wholeness when the other person is not whole um, because they never can be obviously you know as well this is a sort of an emotional portrait of proletarianization the changing character of the class dynamic you know we've talked about this a lot um, it's exposing so we have you know really this is a, a, a lower middle class girl middle class girl from northern europe who is um in a, a very proletarianized role and whose aspiration it becomes to service the new rich in a new location of capital, which is the Middle East, which is Benjamin points out is a simulacrum of a simulacrum of something that, you know, was once uh, considered, um, you know, a financial center. Um, Yeah, and I think that so so this idea of that we're in the age of the bot, in the age of um, emotional labour, this is where the solipsism occurs. We do not have, we cannot get beyond the solipsism of our own existence, this perpetual self-questioning which leads to anxiety, and we need this dialogue in recognising the actual divided nature of subjectivity, which I feel like this film did really well, you know, it exposed... Um, I don't know if we can say the real, you know, this is obviously uh, a performance of a performance, right? But, um, and that potentially shows, show, you know, holds a relief, the nature of performance. Um, but, you know, I think that, you know, you, you both mentioned, I think, that when, when the union rep approaches Cassandra and she says, you know, I don't believe in change. But, you know, in a sense, everything changes. And at the same time, everything stays the same. So we are in a new reality. I think um, the... Um, simulacrum left <laughs> the self-appointed left which isn't really left wing uses a version of a reified like a reified version of theory and, and projects it onto a here and now but not understanding that the dynamics are the same but the outcome of those dynamics are different today so we might for instance talk about um colonialization today, what it looks like is very different from the colonialization of the 19th century, obviously, but we might say that the dynamics are similar, but we have to read them in today's context instead of perpetually throwing out this really reactionary way, you know, white men this, you know, this country this, this country this, because things are happening under capitalism today that are different, but have the similar underlying dynamics, and it is our job to be um, more new, nuanced isn't even the word, but the word, but like understanding of the of the dialectic of how this operates, how capitalism operates. You know, we look to past writers, we elevate them to the uh, to the position of undivided gods, so that we do not have to reflect on our own conditions. And we think because the class dynamic doesn't look exactly like it used to, you know, often this leads to people. I've seen people talking to say Marxist theorists and saying, you know, your work doesn't apply anymore because it does. It's not. People work. Do people don't work in factories as much anymore? For instance, but actually, you know, these things are the same. Capitalism isn't changing; it's still capitalism. The dynamics are there, but it might not look exactly like it used to. Um, yeah, I found the last scene like very, very moving in this sort of world of Dubai, <laughs> and this is this is the thing that she sort of aspired to, and it is sort of um, you know this is this is a world that I've experienced quite a lot with some of the work that I've done in the past. And it is a very melancholic universe. Part of the reason, I think, is because of the way in which we do not philosophically have a handle on the nature of our economic system today. Because of the rapid changing nature within capitalism, we haven't correctly digested what is going on. And the elites of today, I don't think, 
are familiar with their position and previous systems at least went some way to instigate lack for these elites, which they do not have. And a proximity to the object of desire without lack is very traumatizing, creates melancholy. And perhaps, you know, obviously we, we, we all need to eat, we all need to, we prefer not to be alienated in our work, we need to be provided for, we need to be able to survive. But th- I think that the, the um, universe of today is a melancholic one and that the winners in these um, environments also lose. Yeah, yeah I, I like the point that you made there about how on social media you have to display your flaws so that your apparent success is convincing to sell a lifestyle on social media the person needs to be flawed it makes it more attractive the celebrity lifestyle looks better in part because the celebrities have all sorts of problems that you hear about the problems that the celebrities have are essential to their role but this is this is precisely the problem. It seems like a flaw, but it's a commoditized flaw. So it's not actually a divided flaw. It's a flaw that actually removes the division of morality within the you know, because we're all divided subjects. So this the division in these elite subjects who um, under capitalism has you know not at their own hand, but uh, been elevated that position off the backs of a lot of other people, and a way to neutralize that division, which is essentially surface value or class antagonism is to have something that appears to be division, because actually this is something that we seek in order to be recognised in the eyes of the other. Um, not as in the, the, the subject seeks to be divided, but we seek division in the other. Um, but it's a commoditized division that acts precisely as a cover over di- of division. And I remember doing a lecture about this. Not, it wasn't really about this, but we got onto the form of like the idea of public and private and how... Um, psychoanalysis really operates on this idea of addressing your public and I got into a little debate with um, somebody about this idea of public and you know there was things like you can't say because I would say all that stuff is private it's commoditized it's in the public sphere as a commodity so it's privately owned it's not actually it's not philosophically in a psychoanalytic sense what we would say public um, what we would call public um, and as soon as you add in that commoditized issue and I think that point you made Nina was like so good in terms of the she can't be too real she has to be a fake real it has to be a come so it seems sincere it seems like emotion it seems like being a divided subject but it is packaged it's not real yeah i mean the other thing i think this film did very well actually which i just forgot to mention in the opening um description discussion was um the the horribly mundane but deeply pernicious um, quality of the language used by the managers, you know, when they were kind of either chastising her or talking about her employment. Um, and it's always this kind of secondhand language because in a way they're embodying the, the regulations and the rules of the company, but they're not quite the company except they kind of are. And I thought the film really did a very, did that language extremely well. You know, it's, it's the language of, when you're talking to somebody, I don't know, at an energy company, and of course they have to tell you what the rules are of the energy company, but they're also a human being conveying this information to you, but they kind of have to sort of internalize the, the language of the, of the company and speak on behalf of it. And there is something always about this kind of, oh, you know, well, it's not up to me, but the rules state this. And, you know, when she, when she, when it turns out that she's been giving her staff slightly too high evaluations because the quote, you know, they, they should have lower evaluations because they're not selling enough products because there was turbulence on a flight or whatever. And, you know, again, this kind of, slight bursting forth of humanity on the part of the protagonist is um, rendered back into this language of quantity and this sort of, um, you know, horrible bureaucratic regulations that are not, you know, that, that no one's ever going to actually read, but somebody knows them and somebody will have to perpetuate them. And I thought 
that this film did that so well because it, it was never like they were angry with her. They never, you know, they never actually had a confrontation with her. It was only ever this passing on, you know, and, and it really gives you this idea of how how horror happens in bureaucracies. Mm-hmm. And and to build on that, in addition to this this kind of sanitized language, they will often make reference to the concept of danger. You know, that it was dangerous. When they are suspend when they're transferring her, they say that it was dangerous of her to buy a drink mm-hmm. with her own credit card. Uh, that, that she could have hurt someone. There's a constant emphasis on harm, on danger. And these terms, they've been told to use them and told to apply them as a way of rationalizing or justifying the rules. But it's not at all clear, of course, what's dangerous about her buying mm-hmm. the drink. Uh, and, and totally beside the point, she doesn't ask what's dangerous about it. Everybody just pretends that they know what's dangerous about it. What's dangerous about it is that it's it's not following the rules. And if you don't follow the rules here, where else might you not be following the rules? And that's why it's important that it be a simulacrum, because if it was too genuine, then you might worry that all sorts of things might not be done and that the plane might crash. Any deviation suggests other possible deviations. There's a kind of iceberg principle at work where if you've broken a rule that we can see, who knows what other rules are broken? There may be all kinds of enormous dangers in flying airplanes without following all the rules. And that's why this this kind of, of extremely particular rationalizing goes on in airports and on airplanes. Because if you break rules on airplanes, you can, if you break the wrong rules, cause the plane to fall out of the sky. But only if you break the wrong rules. Most of the rules that we follow on airplanes are totally irrelevant to that. Mm -hmm. But yet, if you break one of those rules, it suggests you might have broken or you could break in the future one of the rules that actually matters. Uh, But in general, in our society, the concept of harm and the concept of danger is uh, flung around all the time as a way of making people do things, as a way of terminating thought, terminating discussion, and forcing people to accept particular lines. Uh, And also, They could have made this film, some of the reviewers talk about how they could have made this film about a passenger from the passenger's point of view, but it's interesting to have instead done it from the junior flight attendant point of view. And then, of course, within this film, they move from the junior flight attendant to the cabin manager, so you get that point of view as well. Just as as equally, it would have been interesting to move to the people who then discipline the cabin managers, because Mm -hmm. they have the same relationship to their work, which the cabin managers have, which the flight attendants have, which even the passengers on some level have, which is this dual relationship between personating the company and any genuine, real, sincere values, which they might have. The thing is, the further up you go in that company hierarchy, the more you need to personate the company, the more reflexively you need to personate the company. So the level of personating that a junior flight attendant does, that's perfectly adequate to a junior flight attendant. But as soon as you're the cabin manager, you're expected to personate the company more fully. And that's what makes that job so much worse. And it's why she doesn't want that job. And then we can imagine how much worse it must be to be the person the level above who must then discipline the cabin manager for failing to down uh, to downvote their juniors enough so that the company can judge the juniors and whether the juniors are good sales reps. Because at this point, this budget airline has turned its flight attendants into into sales reps. They're more sales mm-hmm. reps than flight attendants. I'm really interested. So I'm sort of, um, if I had to do a mastermind subject, it would be plane crashes. I'm a bit of a plane crash nerd. I know all the facts. There's this really good, a, a few years ago when I was um, in a, doing quite a stressful project, I like, found it on YouTube really relaxed and it sounds weird but anybody I put this onto they get really into it as well um, and a friend of mine said it was because it's a system that so rarely fails that it's reassuring so um, there's this channel called the flight channel and the guy who, uses, who does it uses this um, like simulator to and often he does it with a voice box recordings and it was last about 16 minutes you know very um, I don't know what it's like the opposite of annoyment it's very it's very calming and <laughs> But the point being is that, um, yeah, it's it's a system that operates so well that even though these are these exceptions to the rule, and often people watch flight, um, watch, it's like used as a therapeutic for people who are scared of um, flying, which I sort of am. But I think it probably makes it worse. But the point being is, 
it's interesting to me on campus, you know, so when one works in an organisation and one is confronted with basically how we're all very useless and we all kind of, you know, you enter into a corporation, you see a little bit behind the door and you're like, oh, it's all a big shit show. And everybody, you know, lots of people are very competent. There's lots of very incompetent people. Um, but planes are something that, like, you know, that, that stay in the sky. And it's something where it is a capitalist enterprise, obviously, but like the we have sacrificed advancement. So if we look back at, like, say, the 40s, 50s, 60s in flight, and actually the 80s, there were so many plane crashes that were obscene. We've sacrificed, you know, um, improvement as in, like, technological improvement because our planes are basically the same technology as they were, like, 50 years ago for safety. So, for instance, Concorde didn't catch on because we'd rather be safe or whatever. And I don't know, is it something, it's just something that's interesting to me. I haven't really thought about it at all in terms of um, that safety element. But of course, yeah, these, these flight attendants have these life or death roles. And as you know, the, the, the training they go from, the, the smiling, it's, it's a really weird contradictory job where it is, you know, like a service job, serving tea and coffee and whatever, and smiling for 30 seconds. But at the same time, they have this training of like, everyone's going to die. And when you watch these uh, plane crashes, you always come to see that the flight attendants are very, very brave in all of these situations. <laughs> Um, I couldn't be a flight attendant because I'm too scared of crashing. It would just not be worth it financially for me because I'd be like so scared all the time. But there is something just about, you know, I don't know how these like accident prone things under relate to capitalism. I mean, like you have the Titanic, which like part of the reason why it's so fascinating is like the contradiction of like, um, you know, technological achievement and risk and everything like that. But we do... We do, like, harm, you know, we do make um, profit off the backs of violence and destruction and climate change and all this kind of stuff. But also, on the other side, we're, like, so harm reductionist. But it goes all the way up, right? Because it's not just that, say, airplanes are dangerous, but the economy itself is dangerous. Yeah. So if we take this all the way up to, say, the head of state or the president, it's very important that the president not behave in a way which upsets our sense that the economy is being managed, that the whole world economic system and international system are being managed in a way that accords with the rules of how you're generally supposed to manage it. So we have these sets of liberal norms and uh, international uh, institutions and the norms of how you're supposed to interact with them. And if we have someone who violates those norms, even in trivial ways that have nothing to do with actually maintaining the security of the system, it becomes very unsettling. And of course, I could talk about Trump tweets, but I could just as easily talk about that time when Nikita Khrushchev hit the uh, table with the shoe, a, a tiny, tiny deviation from norms, which showed his personality, showed him as a human being, but caused everyone to feel that they were in terrible danger, that the whole uh, world might fall apart because if this person will violate that norm and hit the table with his shoe, might he press the button and lob nuclear weapons at other countries? And so in just the same way, if a person in even a very, very senior role makes these trivial transgressions against the logic of the system and its rules and its norms, then this fear spreads that the whole thing might be about to come undone by its sudden humanization. If it becomes too human, then mm. it will become too dangerous, too unpredictable, too sclerotic. Uh, excuse me, not sclerotic, too... Um, I, yeah, I'm looking for a different word. It's not that yeah, word. Yeah. Chaotic. Yeah. yeah, too chaotic, right? So all of these tiny little deviations become enormously important to protect the safety and security of the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And and this is why Trump, for a certain set of people who are very committed to the system and to the particular way it runs, was so, so upsetting in a visceral way, even in uh, the trivial little transgressions, the trivial deviations, those suggested the possibility all the time that the whole thing could suddenly become very human. And for that reason, even even apart from any other policy, even apart from any association with any uh, particularly bad ideology or, or uh, view or movement or what have you, Trump was viscerally upsetting on an aesthetic level because he he broke these norms in ways which suggested the possibility of, of breaking more important norms. He's like the flight attendant who is too friendly. <laughs> Yeah, so they have this sort of the faux, the faux glamour is all part of it. 
Because, you know, they, even on the budget airlines, I mean, their uniform was atrociously bad, but you see there's still like an attempt to sort of evoke the sort of 1960s style pencil skirt and sort of updo and all this kind of stuff and like heavy makeup. It's all part of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And one of the things that's nice about this film is they do present her completely differently when she's speaking in French and off the clock. She, her face looks totally different. They, they do... I don't know if it's no makeup or totally different makeup, but it, it's a very different look. The final scene, yeah, I do find the final scene very moving. And she's sort of like childlike in this very tacky world, but also sort of in awe of it. And there's a song, I think it's called Faded or Fading or something, which, you know, I mean, um, who knows? I don't know what the lyrics say, but it has that sort of Instagram feel. And it does feel like a sort of Instagram video. Um and as you said, I think, uh, Benjamin, that a lot of it was filmed on um, phones. I, I, actually, I mean, I'm quite intrigued as to how they, what lenses and stuff they used for that last shot because it was really well done, even though it was on a phone, and how they managed to sort of put it off without people seeing and stuff. Um, but yeah, no, there's something, it's like it's like a melancholy version, version of an Instagram post. It's like, it's a true version. You know, I felt really... Um, you know, there were these shots and stuff of her like walking to work in a uniform with like Vangelis playing. And I just thought it was like kind of interesting, this sort of like the patheticism of her of her work and the kind of elevated nature of, you know, that, that those tracks. But that last post, because, you know, what we see obviously on Instagram is, is so, um, projects um, a, 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 like an anti-melancholy, you know, a, a, an aliveness with... Um, sort of this transcendent wholeness or whatever, even if it is about, you know, apparently divided subjects. But there was something about that last scene that I found really just purely sad, even though it has this sort of, you know, it's filmed on a phone. It was this type of place where you take an Instagram video and it had that kind of um, catchy, boppy, like Euro techno music that seems to go. Like, honestly, Instagram, you guys, you guys aren't on Instagram, are you? I have one. Do you? I'm not on there all the time, but I have shit. one. I'm going to find you on Instagram. No, Instagram is like I, I had Facebook very for a very brief period at university, and the feeling that I got before I did like deleted Facebook then is the same feeling I'm getting now. And it's like you know, there's been a you don't see your friends' posts as much. You see these. It's all about reels, which is obviously like a way to extract greater labor and value from producers because every time you do a reel it actually probably takes the time of about 20 actual photo posts and this encourages people to post less like the nice sort of friendly post less and less and less and it's 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 horrible facebook and instagram is and it also has become a universe where and i think this is to do with the type of things that are being posted where people feel okay now to to troll each other and to like start arguments when it was like up until maybe I don't know this last year it was always like a really nice place where people were like nice and supportive to each other and now you're really experiencing the kind of it seems like I just joined Facebook for um, a job and it seems a lot nicer than Instagram now and Facebook seemed like that was the shouty place but now Instagram seems like a shouty place as well well Facebook has become the domain of the old it has yeah so it has a whole different tone now from what it had 10 years ago just a whole different thing really only boomers really post on Facebook anymore. Me too. Yeah. I, and I guess maybe Gen Xers, but... Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I had to go back on Twitter for this compact job, which, you know, and of course, my initial resolution was only post things to do with work. And, you know, but then you inevitably end up posting, you know, the random aphorisms that turn up in your head and you think might be intriguing or you end up discussing something with somebody and, you know, all of that. Um but yeah, I, I never understood Instagram. I think I was too old for it when it hit the target market sort of thing. I, I think I, every time I looked at it, I just felt terrified, honestly. My my, my instinctive response is one of fear. I, I think also because I find images just overwhelming and I, I'm just much more word-based. I know we discuss films all the time, but I actually, my my, my medium is, is words, obviously. And, and so Instagram, I found... It's like maybe just too overwhelming and I didn't really understand it uh, and so I never got into it and I think it's partly an age thing I do quite like Facebook but I find myself posting hardly ever on Facebook now um, and you know that 
yeah the the twitter thing is like where people still go to discuss media that's the thing it's kind of like because it's so obsessed with itself like it's where media people go to talk about media so if you're working for a magazine it seems like you kind of have to be on twitter it does seem like a really media sphere but it's funny because a lot of people so you can tell who spends a lot of time on instagram when you post a story and you and people the people who like really quickly always just look and they always have this like sort of ADHD reaction of the image. They want this immediate sort of like image feed. And it's so many people who work in, like obviously just in terms of the people that I follow myself, like working film crew, are like really obviously get something out of images and like really get a thing out of like seeing stuff. But it is true that like, it's a, but it's so, like the, the media Twitter is such an ideological sort of like, it really follows the contours of like striverish. Um, which, you know, and that's not to say like everybody has to be sort of a striver under capitalism and what are you going to do? So, I mean, like, this is not like a, like a personal critique or anything, but it is just, it just is interesting to see it in relief on like the sort of networking of people within the media industry on Twitter and showing that you have the right. Well, it's views. professional class. Yeah, it is. The- yeah. Yeah, the, the user base is overwhelmingly professional class. Anybody who's looked at it, looked at the data for Twitter, it's a totally professional class user base. It doesn't look at all like the general public. It looks much less like the general public than the user base for Facebook, for instance. Yeah. Uh, it is a weird space. So when you're on there, you have to remember it's weird and you have to balance it with other, you know, doing other things in life and having other kinds of conversations because otherwise it becomes a very class echo chamber and that's not to say that everybody on twitter thinks the same thing there are lots of different versions of professional class echo chamber but that's mainly what it is Uh, i i do want to ask a question before we get to the end of the hour did you guys ever see the film up in the air Mm -hmm. with george clooney yeah it was a very sort of like 2010 ish film wasn't it yeah, for, for listeners who might not know, this film where George Clooney, he flies around all the time. He has a lot of frequent flyer miles, and his job is to go around and fire people. He goes around and fires them in person. You can tell the film's a little old because he doesn't just Skype them or Zoom them. He actually goes where they are, and he fires them. Uh, and he has this sense that the whole, you know, firing people job is, is just increasingly not being done in the right way, that there's a right way to fire people that is appropriately sensitive and younger people don't get it and they're not firing people in the right way. It's a kind of a, a different look at some of the same stuff, but from the point of view of a passenger, it's shot in a much more traditional way. It stars George Clooney. So it's there's a level of remove to it for all of those reasons. But a film that, that focuses on some of the same things insofar as this this firing people as a job uh, is very similar to the kind of work that people do in the airline industry. It involves a similar kind of personation, a similar kind of detached, just telling people. Uh, but the thing is that George Clooney in, in that job has become very good at simulating really caring about the people who are fired. And he takes pride in having... Learn to simulate this so well that people come out of the meetings with him feeling much better than they otherwise would about being fired. And so it's an interesting look at uh, when when this really succeeds, when you do fully internalize this to the point where you're able to do it at a very high level, which you would have to to fire people in such a way that they'd feel good when they leave the room. Um, yeah. A very different kind of perspective on it. The, the other film that came to mind, actually, watching this was um, a film called Two Days, One Night, which mm-hmm. I don't know if you've seen, mm-hmm. um, which is um, 2014. Uh, an- another French film, I think, set in a French language film set in Belgium. Um, and it's also about work. It's also about a woman who is suffering from depression and... She wants to come back to work, but I think that they try to... uh, She's played by Marion Cotillard, who's very good Mm -hmm. in this film. Um, And I think she's trying to convince them to take her back on. And it's it's all about trying to use this person, you know, her humanity in order to convince the business to take her back on or something like this. The the description says... A young woman assisted by her husband who has only one weekend to convince her colleagues to give up their bonuses 
so that she can keep her job. That's it. That's it. Uh, yeah. And it's interesting because that film, I think it's really, um, so she starts, she's depressed. That's why she's been off work. And actually the thing not to be like, it, it, I thought about this film because when I watched it, it's like totally different to a film that I, I did, but it has a similar structure and that it starts off with somebody depressed who in her encounter with other people, even though it's not a successful encounter, allows her to almost become, knit the chain of signifiers together. I mean, it, like it's it definitely is not. Um, it's it's it, it's about yeah, like working class jobs in Belgium, um, and this woman who basically has been off work because she's depressed, and obviously that means that because she's been depressed, she hasn't been a good worker, and she's been convinced while she's been off sick, oh that they the team can do their job just as well without her, and actually they should divvy up her salary for them to pay for the extra work that they're doing, and obviously she, then she has to she has to um, persuade them otherwise, and you know. Some people say no, some people say yes. And then there is the um, reaction of her. Uh, basically, the boss says, yeah, if you do this, if you convince them then, but then you know, there's the, the sort of changing reaction of the boss. But it is the human interaction of the other and having enough people there in solidarity, I think, that allows her to move forward from her depression. As in, you know, potentially her depression. I mean, depression is to do with uh, loss, um, as in, you know, when you have... A fantasy structure was sort of knitted into the chain of signifiers, and then something disappears in that chain. Um, often, it's to do with when you have projected, um, like you know, sort of an ideology of promise type fantasy onto an object, and then you end up not getting it. Um, you know, if you got it as well, there might be another form of depression. But you sort of like you you experience the gap, as in that that thing that you thought was possible is impossible. But in this solidaristic act of um, well, in this act that like inspire solidarity from some of her colleagues. I think that that sort of like she she sort of there's this sort of an uplifting ending, sort of a semi-uplifting ending. I mean it's not really uplifting, but you get a sense, a light sense that this has done something good for her mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But yeah, the Darden brothers are, are really interesting filmmakers and that's a really good film. Very simple. Mm-hmm. Could be interesting to do at some point. I mean, we'll I just have to see. Um, estranged. Oh, if you did, then I, people should go listen to that. I, I should go lie, listen to the Estranged I've definitely episode. spoken about that, that film before. Um, yeah, it, entirely possible. Well, looking at Estranged is always something that people might consider doing if they feel that we're not making these episodes fast enough and they want to listen to more Helen talking about films. <laughs> Don't bother. Who, who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want that? Me. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, it's... it's uh, yeah, it's interesting that the, the credit that the directors took for this film was like a film conceived of and executed by. You know, it wasn't... Because it isn't like a really traditional narrative. Although it, it sort of is. It does have a sort of a beginning, middle and end and it does... But it doesn't do the sort of like um, riven, scripted film sort of dynamics. Um, but it is a portrait, and it's quite an emotional one. And I think it, it's really good. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> but what do you guys think about um, this idea of, uh, you know, the proletarianization of, you know, because to me, I read, um, somebody showed me an article that said that this is a working class girl from um, from Belgium. And I would get the impression from... Um, her upbringing that I mean, I'm guessing this character is that age mentioned in the film the actress was born in 1993 yeah, so the actress is about yeah. a year younger than me yes, and this would have been a year ago so yeah, no, I the actress like, yeah. would have been 28 <laughs> but I don't know yeah, about the character the character was sort of you know let's say 25 to 28 doesn't yeah I, th- I think mid 20s I would say mid 20s and um, it seems to me because you do get a, like a flavour of her upbringing and her home life that this isn't, you know, she, she, I don't think she went to university, but I don't think this is a, like, you know, let's say, born into a working class background. She seems to be born into, like, a, some form of middle class background, but I could be wrong. And I, I think this speaks to the proletarianization of that. I think, I think the implication is that her parents maybe ended up working for a real estate company because her sister works for a real estate company. And I think when they're clearing out his mm-hmm. office or something like this, I think some of the material is 
like from a small family-owned company, real estate company yeah. or something like that. I the think. father seems to have a little bit of a judgmental attitude about her job, mm-hmm. suggesting that he thinks her job is beneath their family background or, fa- or class status. Yeah. Um, Calls her a stewardess. I mean, in French, but French Yeah, and I, I think the implication is, you know, throughout the film, in a way, this is a kind of transient job in a transient world taken by someone who is suffering these transient moods you know mm-hmm. that this is in a way that the the job that you would get when you don't really know what you're doing precisely because it appears to offer these transient things you know that that it's totally in keeping with everything else she's doing like the tinder dates the meeting someone for two hours in a country she won't return to Mm-hmm. You know, the the temporary accommodation, the, you know. You know it used to be that if, if you wanted to you know, have a, spend some time thinking about your life and, and travel around, you'd join the Peace Corps, mm. you'd take a gap year if you, if you could afford it, you'd go and, and do some kind of work in a, a developing country. Yeah. Almost the opposite of this, and that you'd go somewhere where they're really was uh, you know, a kind of thinness to the formal rules that we see in heavily bureaucratized Western liberal democracies uh, where those things are not as, as tightly sewn up or not as tightly knit together. But maybe on the one hand, there aren't as many places like that anymore. And maybe on the other hand, uh, that would be too frightening to people these days. Insofar as there are such places that you can still go that are still like that. Yeah, it seems like this, as you say, is like the transient um, element, like element of it. Often, historically or even today, you know, you might take transient jobs that you could um, earn a bit of money to then be able to do something else. But this is very much a, an imprisoning, a handcuffy kind of situation. You know, it is very proletarian. And again, like these jobs um, that seem, you know, they have like an air stewardess. We have a kind of like. Uh, image attached to it of you know even if it's not prestigious anymore there was the sort of um, mm. you know ideologically there will be some hangover of the prestige of the yeah. past and you get to travel you get to meet people and obviously this is something with a slightly better job with the Dubai company you know it, it's seen as more prestigious or what have you but again it's 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 the bare minimum it's absolutely the bare minimum and it does feel very much on the, those jobs you know it's an uberized job they're getting rated all the time they really don't have much um, a bit you know bargaining power you you can't you get fired or promoted you know this is not these are not jobs well they're jobs for life isn't they imprison you for life but they're like unlivable jobs yeah in the Hostile book she makes it clear because she she you know this was partly an empirical study so she was saying that the air hostesses were like weighed on a, a weekly basis because they weren't allowed to be over a certain weight at this time you know in order to maintain their figure you know, and this this level of policing of the body of the the stewardess, you know, it's quite extreme. You know, it's like there's just so much policing in every moment of of the flight attendant's life. Yeah. That, that that leads to this bacchanalia in the moments when they're not bound by those rules. Mm. Uh, I also thought about you know, people who young people who don't have the economic ability to go and take uh, something transient. Uh, sometimes joining the military mm-hmm. as a device for yeah. seeing the world or having adventures and there being in a very heavily regimented form of living where the body in particular mm-hmm. is very heavily regimented with again in these moments where you are off duty or you are allowed to be uh, on the town oftentimes there's a, a great explosion of of all of the things that have been repressed or suppressed. There's also um, it's something that's kind of interesting in terms of these transient jobs and like a lot of the, the, the demographics of these budget airlines are so young precisely because they aren't sustainable to actually have a you know, proper solid existence. If you fly like BA or like a transatlantic BA flight, you, you realise that the stewards and stewardesses are older generally than mm-hmm. if you go with a cheaper airline, which obviously goes to show that these are airlines where... You know, I mean, I, I can't speak to how much British Airways pays and it's probably shit, but like they possibly have some bargaining power, which means that these people are able to do this job and survive for a longer period of time. But I'm, yes, I say it's probably not. 
the, the budget airline is so focused on selling things. It needs sales girls mm-hmm. to sell the stuff. And those older airlines are making their money. You know, oftentimes they have banks attached to their frequent flyer programs that make more money than they make from the ticket sales. So it's a whole different business model, really. Yeah. And that allows for a whole different kind of, of flight attendant. That would be an interesting comparative thing. What, what would it be like to work for a BA? But that's less glamorous, or at least less seemingly glamorous than this job. Anyway, we're at about an hour. So we're going to have to wrap up for today. But we're going to go and do the B-side for our Patreon listeners. So if you'd like to, come on and join us over there. In the meantime, thank you so much for listening. And have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.